Hello and welcome back to the Liberland Show. I'm your host, Adam J. Carswell, to joined today joined by a legend, to say the least, Mr. Rick Rule, who I had the privilege of getting to know uh, just last month, actually. And Rick, it's good to be reconnected with you, have you here on the show. Really looking forward to sharing your story with our audience and, and getting to know you a little bit more. So again, thank you for, for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on. I'm sure I'm going to enjoy the process. So um, maybe like many of you uh, listening in right now, about a month ago, I did not know who Rick Rule was. Um, and then within a, just a matter of hours, I kind of found myself saying, wow, I can't believe I didn't know who this guy was. <laughs> so if you're, if you're new to him, you're, you're in for a treat today. You can even probably Google, Google him a little bit as we make our way through the interview. Um, but um, he's someone who's, who's accomplished a lot. I really admire and uh, I'm looking forward to learning from you as much as, as we can here today, Rick. So what I remember about um, our time hanging out together most vividly right now is you said everything started making sense in regards to how everything is messed up when Muhammad Ali kind of stuck his flag in the ground and said, Hey, you know what? Government schmoverment. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. And um, I just remember you sharing me that is a light bulb moment for you. So let's, uh, let's begin there. Well, that's right. I guess I was about 16 years of age and I uh, let's just say that I wasn't a profound political thinker uh, or philosopher. I, I was a young guy trying to get on with his life, trying to have some fun, meet girls, you know, the usual thing. Uh, and the Vietnam War seemed like an enormous inconvenience to me, but it seemed like an inevitability too. It seemed like it was inconvenient, but it was something I was likely going to have to do. I didn't think about whether it was right or wrong. <laughs> and then the most unlikely foreign policy analyst in the world, prize fighter, <laughs> name of Muhammad Ali, uh, got on the TV. I mean, you probably remember the exact quote. I'm not allowed to use all the words right now because of political correctness, but he basically said that he didn't have any quarrel with any Vietnamese. He went on to say that he wasn't a nonviolent per person, that he fought for a living. And if the Viet Cong ever, you know, sort of showed up in Louisville, that, uh, you know, <laughs> he'd go at them. He just didn't think it was any his business to go over there and tell them how to run their lives. And you see, Adam, it had never occurred to me that the war in Vietnam was wrong. It just occurred to me that it was inconvenient. Mm. But when I had to ask myself at age 16 whether I wanted to inconvenience myself by flying 12,000 miles away and killing folks who posed no threat to me or being killed by those same folks, then it became more than inconvenient. And that was probably my first real political awakening. Yeah, I mean, talk about being able to read between the lines at a relatively young age uh we've had a lot of people on the show and i always kind of like to ask where where did this all begin for you and the most common trend i found actually especially um with with men that we've had on the show is you know at some point their father planted the seed in their mind and then eventually they started questioning the system uh, for you it was muhammad ali <laughs> did you, you have know, any other influences there was an odd realization at 16 years of age that Muhammad Ali, a prize fighter, knew more about international politics than 520 people in Congress. Uh, so that was sort of off-putting, you know? It's interesting uh, how, as, as we get further from that time, too, it's even more obvious now, right? Because yeah. in that moment, I'm sure there was, you know, a lot of people saying he was crazy. Well, it's been acknowledged now. 
And, you know, at the time, he was accused of being anti-white and racist and all this. And he addressed that really well. He said, I'm too busy being pro-black to be anti-white. I have <laughs> no time for that, you know. Now, why couldn't people in Congress be that wise and that forthcoming, you know? And it's interesting. You say that the seed was planted by the father. After that, when I started reading more about stuff, I ran into Ayn Rand. So you might say with me after Muhammad Ali, the seed was <laughs> was planted yeah, by a by woman. The mother. Yeah. By the woman, that's right. Yeah. And wow. I mean, we just talked about um actually it was another show that I was on, but we were talking about Atlas Shrugged the other day. And we recently had Walter Walter Block on here who yeah. um maybe maybe that's contradicting my statement as well there, because Walter said Ayn came and spoke um at his school or something and he came to throw tomatoes at her and ended up getting converted. Yep. So yep. Uh, very cool. Well, so you ended up doing your own Muhammad Ali version of this all and found yourself of all places in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, I myself I re relocated to this country for not really for political reasons at all, but sometimes people ask me if that's why. Um, but tell us about how just that, that whole thought process, how you were able to do that. And it seems like it worked out very well for you. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things happened. I had an aunt who had already emigrated to Canada, and she was a professor at the University of British Columbia. So I had a chance to see Vancouver when I was a young man. Uh, and I was attracted by the physical beauty of the place. Uh, I, I was attracted by the fact that UBC, University of British Columbia, wasn't going through the social discord that was happening on American college campuses. I, I didn't have any interest in wearing a gas mask to get to class which probably would have been what would have happened to me had I gone to something in the University of California system. I sure didn't have any interest in being, uh, you know, put in a uniform and flown away to get shot at or shoot at other people. And uh, I had an interest in natural resource finance. University of British Columbia had the only school of natural resource finance in the Western Hemisphere at that point in time. I had a <laughs> a young man's sensibility that if I flunked out of school, I wanted to be able to drive home rather than have to fly home <laughs> from some other place that had that sort of school. So all of those things combined to make me an immigrant in Canada and a student at the University of British Columbia and a resident of Vancouver. And I have to say, I've benefited uh, in every regard from those decisions. Right, right. And especially um, from my observation, it's worked out for you favorably as an entrepreneur which what I've experienced moving here over the past two or three years, it seems like this country maybe has changed a lot from, from those times till now, especially talking, I didn't know about that gas mask thing in U S universities. Everyone's got masks on now, whether it's Canada or America, we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but my observation here is man, um, oper uh, to be an entrepreneur in Canada is still favorable compared to most parts of the world, but comparing it to the U S now, I think when it comes to taxes and getting things set up, I mean, there's just so many, hurdles that you have to go through if you want to establish your own thing. So um, you think, am I seeing it clearly or, or is there something that I'm missing here? You know, Adam, I think it is tougher. Uh, and I think that Canadian culture is uh, less attuned to the private accumulation of wealth. But I also think that anybody who is determined to be an entrepreneur can do okay anywhere. I have a suspicion that if you you know, let me out in Goma in Eastern Congo with a couple thousand bucks in my pocket, I'd find a way. Uh, I, I've I've run into a lot of people in my life, Adam, uh, who said, you know, I, 
I don't even bother trying anymore uh, because of that damn Obama or, or that damn Trudeau or that damn Trump. Fact is, none of those folks know who you are. Uh, don't let them be an excuse for you to fail. Uh, when I got off the boat, metaphorically, when I moved to Vancouver as a penniless 18-year-old <laughs> immigrant, unemployment in Vancouver was at 11%. Uh, there was all these problems, you know. Because I was an immigrant, I couldn't afford to be too picky. I had to have a job so I could go to school. And I got a job in 24 hours. Now, it was a horrible job. Uh, I got a job as a bouncer uh, in a tavern at Hastings and Columbia Street in the heart of Skid Row. I'm not trying to say I got a good job. I'm just trying to say I got a job. Uh, and I was able through perhaps a series of mistakes, but I suspect merely because I tried, uh, to get a variety of other jobs uh, until uh, in my third year in university, I came to own a couple of businesses. So, and by the way, I wouldn't suspect I'm anything particularly unusual, uh, but I, I just think that you, if you really are an entrepreneur, you see a hole in the market and you can't help but fill it. <laughs> and despite the political idiocy that you see on both part both sides of the 49th parallel there's millions of holes in the market there's millions of opportunities for entrepreneurs i know a young woman in vancouver an immigrant like myself who didn't have very many connections actually didn't have very many skills and she started walking dogs for rich folks in the west end <laughs> this young woman's making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year walking dogs uh, and helping other immigrant women establish dog walking businesses. Wow. Now I'm sure Mr. Trudeau doesn't help her much, but Mr. Trudeau doesn't get in, in her way. And I don't think that Mr. Trudeau probably has anything against folks walking dogs. So I would caution you uh, not to let the idiocy of the voters or the idiocy of those elected deter you from trying to fill holes that you see in the market. Very, very well said. And um, as soon as you started sharing that i have another podcast that sometimes i'll repurpose interviews from this one and bring it over there and i mean that was price of admission right there so i love that love that response um you look like you're gonna say something else no 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 okay so i remember uh during your presentation in vancouver uh last month you said something very subtle but it's still ringing in my head as well which was something along the lines of look i've made a lot lost a lot um but I found out that I'm the happiest and I do profit the most when I'm doing exactly what I love to do. And so tell us a little bit about that. Cause I know you are in, as you mentioned, the natural resources sector, um, obviously you're pretty good at communication as well. So what, what is it that you love to do and kind of shed some, some light on that statement? Well, I like to invest and I like to speculate. Uh, I like now in my dotage, <laughs> you know, in my declining years, uh, I like to help younger folks try and avoid some of the mistakes that I made. I, you know, in a, in a great world, I could help people uh, make the money that I made and help them lose <laughs> some of what I lost. That would be great. <laughs> I, I reckon people need to make their own mistakes, but that's a different, that's a different thing. The point of that discussion was simply that in trying to get ahead materially, and, and I'm not arguing that material well-being is all of well-being, it's just the only part I'm good at. Uh, it, it, in terms of getting ahead materially, uh, what's important is that you generate utility for others. That's what's important. And 
I think in terms of generating utility for others, particularly in a competitive basis, that you should attempt to find a, a function where you generate utility for other people that you enjoy. Most people in the world, I think, get hoodwinked uh, into working to live. Mm. I'm lucky enough that I live to work. <laughs> I I joke that I would do what I do for free if it didn't pay so well. That's actually a lie, Adam. <laughs> but um, I, I do like getting paid. But the truth is, I found fairly early on, particularly when I really found my calling in resource investing, I couldn't wait to get to work. Mm. I sometimes resented going home. When I was home, uh, what my mind was occupied with uh, was my passion, my job. I was competing uh, against guys who were doing that job because they wanted a Lamborghini or something. Mm. They were thinking about the Lamborghini and I was thinking about generating value. They were trying to get that Lamborghini with the least amount of effort. And I was enjoying putting effort in how on earth could these guys compete with me? They might be working seven hours a day haltingly. And I was working 16 hours a day, full speed ahead. And remember that the benefit that you get from that is both cumulative and compounding. So after the first year, they couldn't compete with me. But after 10 years, they couldn't see me from where they were. And that's what I think is important. I, you know, I really believe that you acquire material wealth by generating utility for your customer, whoever that customer is. Uh, and I think that wealth itself is the delta between the wealth that you created for others and the wealth that you consumed, both in terms of the cost of your business and also what it took you to live. So to the extent that you have found something that you love that generates benefit for others, particularly if you aren't particularly materialistic, which I'm not, uh, the inevitable result is, at least by conventional standards, that you become very wealthy. Because you're competing with people who aren't bothering to show up to the race. You know what? I, you, you follow what I'm saying? I'm picking up what you're putting down. And it reminds me of uh, a phrase that rings in my head from, from Grant Cardone. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Sure. Uh, real estate guy. Yeah. Uh, he likes to say, be obsessed or be average. And clearly, yeah. um, you tapped into the obsession. And I find myself. So this is, a, this is another piece that I'd like to get your take on. Because in many ways, I find myself waking up saying, you know, looking at the calendar, whatever today, seeing this interview with you, everything that we're doing here, um, going home, sometimes going home isn't as fun as going to work, just like you said. Now, right. have a beautiful wife, baby on the way, obviously, family plays a role. And that's sometimes really, to your point, that's what matters more than the Lamborghini or whatever. So um, throughout your life, how did you find balance between friends, family and loving what you do? I failed. Uh, I'll admit that I made a lot of mistakes that were hurtful to others and hurtful to myself. Uh, that's why I don't hold myself out as, out as a self-help guy. Um, I uh, was uh, self-indulgent to the extent that I put work, uh, my passion, uh, ahead of other parts of my life. I was fortunate enough, like you, that I met somebody who uh, more than tolerated me. She supported me. <laughs> We've had a great life together. But I wouldn't be someone that I would look to in terms of work-life balance counseling. 
I am certainly somebody who understands that for a lot of people, well, for everybody in one sense, material wealth isn't all of one sense of well-being. There are mm -hmm. other things that people need to focus on. And there are some people who are completely unconcerned with material wealth. And I applaud that. if That's what they really want. You know, I, I think the winner is the person who gets what he or she wants in whatever balance they want. I talk about the attainment of material wealth because it's something I know about. Uh, I, I'm not so good uh, in the other walks of life. I mean, it's respectable that you're not trying to pretend that you are, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's good. Well, let me let me follow up with you on this one. The t what could you give us an example of maybe a time where you feel like you were aware of of making um, an effort to connect with uh, with friends or family instead of prioritizing work, and you were kind of proud of yourself? Or happy. Well, you know, that occurs because increasing, you know, particularly now, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, except for the fact I like it, there's no particular reason for me to go out and make money. Uh, what I enjoy doing now in terms of balance is mentoring. I, as an example, uh, mentor a lot of student groups in Eastern Europe and in Africa, particularly. Uh, and I enjoy that. The idea that some old, bald, fat, white guy is conducting a class with some young polysyllabic Congolese kids in Goma, and they're lecturing me on the finer points of Ludwig von Mises, brings me <laughs> incredible joy. I mean, I really, really, really like it. it. Doesn't mean I don't work hard. It just means that I am at a part point in time in my life where I'm enjoying teaching as much as I'm enjoying lending or investing. So cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, even you taking the time out of your day to, to spend some time with us here, invest some time with our listeners. I'm sure some people are, are going to get some indirect Rick Rule mentorship here uh, from joining us. So one thing that I, I know you're starting to lean into, I don't know quite where you're at in the journey yet, is more of this podcasting format, which would be a great way for you to, you know, mentor the masses, really. Um, what does the future of that look like? Is it something we can get ready for? I hope so. There are uh, something like 82,000 people in the last two years, 2.2 years, that have said to me via email that they want more communication from me, either commercial or otherwise. Now, very often when I communicate something, uh, it's followed by 200 unsubscribes. That's okay, too. You know, if people tell you they don't want to talk to you anymore, that's useful. I don't want to... Out of, out of 80K, I think it's all right. Yeah, I don't want to piss folks off any more than, it's, you know, is depending on who they are, of course. Um, but I, you know, there's sort of two things I'd like to do with that. Uh, I would like to um, do as much financial education... Uh, as I possibly can, perhaps even uh, do some form of online publishing business for profit. Very recently, uh, I did a uranium boot camp where I assembled a faculty. We did eight and a half hours online uh, about the length and breadth of the uranium market. Uh, it was a fantastic product. I had a ball doing it. I got all kinds of love letters. And by the way, I sold 3,200 seats to my own listeners at $99 a seat, um, which you're familiar with the economics of online. 
that ended up being a fairly profitable endeavor. So it occurs to me that I can do education uh, on a paid level online. I don't have to compete with the Wall Street Journal. I can't, but they can't compete with me either. Uh, so that's sort of a good fight. Uh, at the same time, there are probably other voices who have as much or more to say than I do in topics that are of interest to me where I can tell that they have something important to say. And perhaps I can help popularize those voices. Perhaps those voices can, in football parlance, be the ball carrier that to follows this big, fat uh, offensive tackle, uh, you know, <laughs> that I can sort of blaze something for them. And then the third thing, of course, would be simply to use the reputation that I've built in finance to talk to more people about politics and philosophy, particularly very young people. And in my, uh, for whatever reason, uh, in my own imagination, particularly people in frontier and emerging markets where I'm engaged in that activity now pretty actively. Yeah, I found that... Um really interesting hanging out with you and, and really that group in Vancouver. It's the first time that I feel like I've had direct exposure to what um, what I believe is referred to by many people as like the hard money sector. It's funny because coming from real estate, hard money has a different term, which I would argue sure. that that this circle is correct. Hard money would be like actually something that you can hold gold or whatever, yeah. not uh, cash for, you know, doing a, doing a house flip or whatever. So um, anyways, be, hanging out with the hard money folks. It was cool to see how casually everyone talked about different parts of the world, mines. I was just like, I haven't even thought about this side of the of the world yet. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have you have my attention, and I'm sure you have some listeners' attention too. So, where can people go if they do want to um, get on that eighty thousand person yeah. email list? Uh, I guess it's www dot, but the domain is ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Perfect. There you guys go. Ruleinvestmentmedia.com. That's going to be our call to action today. Um, flipping back over to the mining sector, this is more of maybe just a personal question, but I'm just curious, like, uh, how how can I get better acquainted with it? I'm at a position now where I feel like all my time is pretty well spent and dedicated, but I can't help but be a curious entrepreneur. So what do you recommend I, I do to, to increase my knowledge? Well, there's a lot of stuff online. Uh, this is a little self-promoting, but I'm in the middle right now of uh, doing something called the Rule Classroom, which is a 10 or 12 part series about the fundamentals of investing in mining. Um, there are numerous other sources out there. The Northern Miner Press uh, publishes a wonderful little uh, guide called Mining Explained. I think it's 20 Canadian dollars and <laughs> it'll save people thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. But I would ask you, before you focused too exclusively on information around mining, I would ask you to become a, a better investor generally. Mm. And I would ask you to do that uh, in four ways that are easy for you, well, easy, that are accessible for you. The first is to read Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt. Uh, if you haven't done it, if your listeners haven't done it, in 160 or 170 pages, it disabuses you of all the bullshit that they taught you in university or college economics. 
Um, it's a really wonderful primer about the way the world works as opposed to the way the big thinkers think it ought to work. It's easy to read. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a wonderful book. Could you restate uh, it one more time? What's the name of it? Yeah, Economics in One Lesson by a guy Fun. named Hazlitt. And you don't even have to buy it. You can go borrow it, the library. The important thing, though, is you, you read it. You know, you can't just buy it and put it on the bedstand and pet it and stuff like that. Uh, you know, become more knowledgeable. Second book, I, I would say, is the best investment book ever written relative to the effort required to understand it. And that's a book called The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. For those in your audience who don't know who Ben Graham is, he had this pretty smart pupil called Warren Buffett, who did mm. pretty well investing. Graham is the professor who took Buffett through the ropes. If you get through that book uh, relatively easily and find it interesting, Ben Graham wrote his own magnum opus, uh, Securities Analysis, which I would argue is the best investment book ever written without qualification. It is not, however, easy to read. <laughs> it's a great cure for insomnia. Uh, nonetheless, if you read the if you read the book and employ the lessons that he taught over time, you will get materially rich. Not like you'll do okay, not like you'll survive. If you read the book and employ the lessons over time, because compounding is what works in wealth creation, you will get rich. Finally, the most impactful book of my life, the book that taught me the way that people operate and the way that the world works, uh, at least the human part of the world, human interaction, is a book called Human Action by von Mises, uh, mm. talking about individual volition, uh, how people act individually, what their motivations are, and how their individual motivations and talents cause them to act collectively. I think if you read those four books, that you will become well-grounded in the precepts around investing. And the consequence of that is that you'll be a more fertile uh, pupil for people who want to teach you about mining investing. Love that. Love that. So that's kind of the the Rick Rule mentorship program laid out for you there, folks. Start with those four books. You go rewind the interview, go back and write them down, check them out. Uh, once you go from that, it sounds like maybe check out that $20 course that you were talking about. What was that one called again? Mining Explained. Mining explained. Then and then online, ready uh, you know, there are various resources online. Uh, but the one I'm working on right now, I think it's called the Rick Rule Classroom at Rule Investment Media. I forget to be honest with you what it's called. I'm just doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, we I'm appreciate it. We appreciate it. And we're happy that um, it's what brings you life because it's bringing life to other people. It's um, it's that delta you were talking about. Right. Now, um, it's ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, cool. There you guys go. Ruleinvestmentmedia.com. That is, I'll just confirm on that too. That's the best way for folks to reach out and get in touch with you if they have any questions. Yes, sir. There it is. Awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for hanging out with us here today on the Liberland show. I just realized we didn't really get much of a chance to talk about Liberland, but everyone who's here, you're familiar. If you're not, you can always go to Liberland.org. You can check out all the other videos on the channel. Um, Rick, it's honored to be associated with you. And maybe there would be um, some collaboration with Liberland in the future. We'd, we'd love to have you come and speak or, or something like that. So I'd, uh, I'd love to do it. I have a lot of experience doing business in Serbia. So at some point in time, maybe I'll visit it <laughs> physically, perfect. assuming that assuming that police forces on either side of the river allow that. <laughs> yes, it's well, it's looking promising here. I think there's a, and I'm going to mess up how to say it, but there's something happening 
with uh, international law in Europe between December and January of this year. And it's favorable from what I from what I've heard for for Lieberland. And it is cool to see the city of Apatine kind of getting this nice little tourism rush uh, from from all the stuff going on there. Nice. So nice. Um, I know you dropped a lot of wisdom with us here today. Any parting words of wisdom? I'm not sure. Uh, I I guess I would say that I would urge in particular young people to understand the the life that they're living right now is the last one they get. You know, uh, this isn't a dress rehearsal. I'm not trying to say that you need to go balls to the walls every minute, but take it seriously. Uh, take control of your future. If you let somebody else take control of your future, the outcome is going to be one that they determine for you. And it's likely not going to be to your advantage. It's much more likely to be their advantage. <laughs> uh, you know, when I look back, I think I wasted uh, I wasted some time uh, in my early 20s doing things that in retrospect weren't important to me or weren't important to anybody else. And I kind of wish I had that time back. I know I don't, mm -hmm. but I kind of wish I had that time back. Duly noted. Duly noted. Thank you, Rick. Uh, that's right. This is not a dress rehearsal. Get out there and get after it. Lieberlanders. This is The Lieberland Show. I'm your host, Adam J. Carswell. Again, joined today by special guest Rick Rule. You can learn more and connect with him at ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Thank you for hanging out with us here today, and we will catch you in the next episode.